War Room Hustlers, welcome back. Another great pod for you today. Dan Fox, no Twitter Dan, is back. We are tackling guys like Nasir Little, Romeo Langford, the two one-and-done, potential one-and-done freshmen at Vanderbilt, Darius Garland and Simi Shittu. And Fox and I weave that into a broader discussion about the evolution of the power forward position, if it's even the power forward position anymore, or if it's something else entirely. But it's a long podcast, so I just want to get right to it. Let's go. All right, Dan Fox, you're not technically in the house, but you're you're on the phone waves. Correct. You're on the phone waves during the, the blizzard of 2018. Yes, yeah, so I'm not in the house, but I am in a house, um, getting over the cold, snowing outside. So for those two reasons, I haven't actually left my home or seen the outside in like roughly 50 hours. So if I start to go off the rails and things get weird here, just 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 hang up on me because it's a possibility. What what are your what are your cold symptoms and what's your typical like cold routine? Because I have like a very like military style routine. Anytime I I know I'm starting to get sick. For me, it's I don't have much. It's just jug orange juice because. I think vitamin, someone told me once vitamin C helps, and I'm pretty sure orange juice has a lot of that. So that's, that's literally the only thing. Um, I really don't do anything else. I've, I've taken in a lot of television. Uh, so it's actually been nice. I've been able to get a few, uh, few college games in, watch some NBA over the past few days, and uh, a little bit of Netflix. Um, but I have no, no routine, and I have no good advice for anybody. I drink orange juice. And uh, it generally takes me a while to get over sicknesses. So please share any uh, any and all advice and routines you have. Oh, yeah. You. I mean, what I do is I pretty much uh, intravenously take in green tea. And at the same time, I take uh, some sort of a cocktail of like Dayquil plus Zycam plus something that I find that's cold related that doesn't have the exact same ingredients as Dayquil. And then I take NyQuil as well. So I'm pretty much going to the bathroom a lot, uh, both number one and number two. And uh, I am pretty much in a complete fog from the amount of over-the-counter medicine I'm taking um, just so that I can, like, get through the cold quicker. I pretty much sacrifice, like, two days of being a walking zombie uh, semi-attached to the toilet. Well, uh, is that like way uh, too much information? Lot, lot, lot to unpack right there. <laughs> uh, I'm a little freaked out. Everybody <laughs> listening to this, I'm sure, is as well. Um, but that's pretty heavy duty. That's pretty heavy duty. Yeah, it is. But I'd also like to think our uh, draft analysis and our player evaluation is pretty heavy duty. So without further ado, uh, I want to talk about the first player prospect that we're going to break down today. Uh, new guy. We haven't really talked about him much. And people don't understand how hard it is for I, – it takes a lot of self-control on my end to not just want to talk players with you throughout the week when we're not doing the pod. Because we saw each other earlier in the week, and I, I very badly wanted to just talk in this year a little. But I'm trying very hard to save all the best parts for our podcast. So I have not talked with you about him at all, and it's pretty much the theme with all these players. Um so here's the question I'll ask you. Does Nasir Little suck? 
right now he does. Right now he does. Uh, I, I, I'm a bit shocked. Uh, I can't remember in the past, you know, handful of years, a guy who's come in so highly touted and just been so off. Um, I mean, we've seen we've seen guys where, you know, a guy like Scal a few years ago where he mentally and physically was just not up to task and ready for the college level or he wasn't ready for the Kentucky coaching staff. There's other guys um, who, who don't translate quickly for a variety of reasons. But this guy just seems so unbelievably lost. And to me also, much less maybe athletic below the rim than I could have ever foreseen him looking. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it, he, he might suck. I, I don't know. I mean, it, he clearly, it's way too early to give up on a guy with his physical tools, uh, obviously, or two, three games in the season. But, I mean, it's a bit shocking to watch Nasir Little play. I think that when we found out he was coming off the bench to start the season, that should have been a, a major, major red flag when you look at, you know, the talent level UNC has. Uh, but I still, you know, wasn't ready for for kind of what his game looks like right now. I mean, I mean but even what if... What do you think? Well, I mean, just to kind of pose a question there, who, who would he start over? Like, even if he was not as bad as he's been, I have a tough time seeing who he displaces to the bench. I, I mean, could he... Could, it's, Kobe White's the weakest guy in that starting lineup. But if you put Nasir Little in there, you just legitimately don't have a ball handler. So I don't know who he replaces, even if he's if he even if he isn't as hasn't been as bad as he's been. No, I mean I don't. I will. I I, I think I think Kobe White is has to start simply by the nature of his position. Um, yeah, I don't know Kenny Williams. I'm not, I'm really I, I don't know. I think he's he's. He probably needs to be playing right now at the college level most of his minutes at the four. Uh, so he can't start on that team regardless. Um, but nonetheless, it's just, it's a bit, it's rare for a player of his pedigree um, to not be starting. Uh, he was kind of a consensus, consensus top five guy, both at the high school level and on NBA draft boards preseason. And it's not like, North Car- North Carolina has a lot of talent, and they're a good team. But it's not like they're full of high level, top level guys. So to me, that's more of the shocker. Once you see him play, I mean, I I agree. He, you know, he's simply not he's simply not a starter. Yeah, I mean, obviously he's a better prospect than a lot of the guys in that starting lineup. But it's tough to imagine Roy Williams. Taking a senior in Kenny Williams, uh, you know, upper there's just upperclassmen in that lineup between Kenny Williams and Garrison and uh, Luke May and Cameron Johnson, and then Garrison Brooks is kind of fits that UNC classic two big lineup. And again, I mean, Kenny Kenny Williams and or Kobe White and Nasir Little play two completely different positions. Uh, so I can't see Nasir stealing his spot, even though he's the weakest link in that starting lineup. Yeah, I I agree. If you look at the makeup of the lineup. he doesn't really have a a fit there. But if I asked you three months ago, just threw the question at you, is Nasir Little going to be starting on opening night for UNC? What would you have said? Yeah, you would have said absolutely. And 
but I, okay, so I mean, let's just kind of get back to and, like. And if he was, it, yeah, I I agree. This is it, we can get off the starting lineup conversation. But if he was tremendous, he would probably be starting somewhere. They yeah. would probably have figured out a way to get him in there. And I think it's it's important to delineate a couple things there. Like you said, consensus top five pick and. This sounds nitpicking, but I would say he's was a consensus top four pick, which matters in this draft when there's not a lot of real contenders for the top three. And in some places, he was even higher. So how do we get here? Like, what did we see out in this year little as a draft community to come into the season with these types of expectations? Obviously, he's somewhat of a late bloomer. He had huge moments in the all-star circuits, you know, and... He passes the eye test, at least from a I want long, well built, three point shooting, defensive minded wings. Um, but I feel like that narrative has now clouded judgment to the point where we just look at someone, they check off enough boxes under that umbrella, and we don't really evaluate any further, and we just expect Kawhi, or at worst, OG Ananobi, you know? Right. Well, outside of outside of the two guys on Duke, uh, from the eye test physically, he's he's the next guy and or he's in that tier, um, from a physical package standpoint. So it makes sense, right? But that but but that can't be like when did we start to start evaluating physical packages? Like I, I I know it's not what you're saying, but like it kind of feels like that was a big part of the Nasir Little debate, right? Like, like the argument for Nasir Little was the physical package, and people thought he was kind of a killer um, because he played well against Cam Reddish in an All-Star game. And I, there's more to it than that. But, like, what if you would have played poorly in that All-Star game? Like, are we talking about him? And if not, then, like, what the fuck are we talking about? Well, maybe not. And maybe, maybe this is a sign of things to come if and when the restriction on high school guys entering the league is lifted because if you go back 10 years or so, there's a million guys that came out of high school that fit this physical mold that never could play in the NBA. Uh, Jonathan Bender, Quintel Wood. I mean, the list goes on and on. So I think naturally we're going to see a reversion back to that in some, in some way. But I'll say for, for little, to me, the main thing that's most striking, which we I've seen since he's been playing at Carolina, which would not have been on display, at least not to the same degree, in high school, is how lost he is playing defense, both on the ball horrible. and off the ball. I mean, horrible. It's, His it's, IQ is terrible. It's, un- it's unbelievable. It's it's. I don't. I think horrible doesn't describe it. To me, he looks like someone who's never been coached on the defensive side of the ball and it looks like he just it looks like he's never played basketball before when you watch him play defense um especially when he's in a situation where he has to react quickly um whether it be trying to stop the ball in transition or whether it be sliding from help onto a man and then having to get back down low into a defensive staff a defensive stance to corral ball handler those types of things where he has to transition from one thing to another on the defensive end, he simply cannot do. And it's it's not even for a lack of effort or a lack of footwork. It's so much 
more fundamental and basic than that. And to me, that's not something that we're just not going to see that in a in, at the high school level generally because he'll generally he'll match, let's say he matches up with the other best, team's best wing player. He gets the lock in on that guy and only that guy, and we're not going to pick him apart if, if if you know if he gets beat here or there. We're going to overlook that because he plays tenacious uh, on the rest of, over across the rest of the court. Um, so to me, that's the most striking thing. Uh, and just seeing how lost he is offensively as well, um, without the ball, it, it, it's, it's shocking to me. He seems like someone who's never been coached. Yeah. And he also feels like someone who just doesn't have a good feel for the game. Um, so on both ends, defensively, especially like the way he deals with screens off the ball, the way he deals with people back door cutting him, people simply just running from one corner to the opposite corner, and then him reading that, and then also like reading the possible screens that might be set. Um, but I think that's a broader conversation that we can get to in a second. I would just say, like from a pure fundamental standpoint, like in terms of the the mechanics of his defense, I think he's flat footed a lot. I think he's a little bit heavy-footed. Um, I think he's built in a top-heavy fashion as well. So he kind of like hulks around a little bit and tries to lean onto people with his upper body. And then that just makes him prone to getting beat off the dribble a lot. And it, there's times where I watch him and it feels like he just has like dead legs. Like it's I don't know if it's that he just did a bunch of leg presses or if he just ran a marathon. But it just feels like his legs are heavy. And... That's not what you want to see from somebody defensively. Now, on a broader standpoint, looking at the lack of IQ and understanding how to play defense, I don't know what to do about that anymore because we kill guys for stuff like that. We spend so much time weaving that into their narrative of their evaluation, and then they get to the league sometimes, and it just they teach them how to play defense, and they're good. And I've had talks with scouts before and my, my my question is, like, how do you even evaluate defense anymore, especially for perimeter players? For big guys, it's different. But for perimeter players, I feel like we look at guys and we'll say, this guy sucks on defense, he's going to suck forever, blah, 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 blah. And they get to the league and they're, they're capable. Like, I mean, Lonzo Ball is a good example. Like, there was nothing that we saw in college that led us to believe Lonzo would be good defensively in the NBA. And Lonzo's not bad. And so how do we how do we, you know, stack up what we see in college that are clear warning signs with what we end up seeing in the league that they get coaching, they're willing, they have enough physical ability, and they wind up defending. Yeah, I think that I think the main thing and, and one of the keys to consider is that a lot of these guys have never been pushed in their career on the defensive side of the ball until they get to college. And for some of them, it's too late. But for most of them, I think defense comes down to effort and also probably to maybe an equal or at least a lesser degree IQ and awareness. Uh, You can improve those things um, probably only to a certain extent. But the effort and the willingness to learn how to slide your feet uh, and the willingness to battle and improve on the defensive end, I think that 
I think a lot of that is just simply a guy's makeup. I think that if we look at people that have the physical tools, first and foremost, but if you have the physical tools and a willingness to work, there's no reason that at the age of 19, 20, 21, you can't learn defense. It's not like offense. So, and, and I think bringing Nasir back into this, to me, that's one of the main reasons why I don't know what he's going to look like at the end of this season, but he's someone that you know we certainly can't give up on because he looks like someone who's doing this for the first time. And if he has a work ethic and he wants to compete and be coached, I think you can teach him how to play defense. Yeah, and he I, is, I, however, I suppose a little, you know, he's further away based on what I've seen in these few games than probably most prospects we're talking about. Like, if we look back a few years at a guy, I know that you were a bit critical, and, you know, we all were, I think, a bit critical of his defense and a guy like Justice Winslow, uh, he's not, Justice Winslow is far ahead of this guy right now defensively, or at least when he was at Duke, I should say. So, you know, I think the gap there is, is much more significant than others we've seen, but it's something where if, if this kid has the work ethic and the right mentality, he can get better. Yeah, and I, I'm not going to lie. Like, looking back on Justice, I would bet part of that was me being younger into my Evie Hoops career, you know, post-Clib Hoops, um, and probably trying to flex my muscles a little bit in how well I could poke holes in somebody's game. Uh, and I probably nitpicked Justice too much defensively. He wasn't good, but he wasn't atrocious. He just had lapses. This kid's bad. There hasn't been right. any moments where I can look at outside of a steal here or a block there, but I, I would I would argue he's just so uncommonly toolsy for this level that like he sneezes and he steals the ball. He farts and he blocks somebody. Like it's not even reading the, the game or timing. It's just like someone's driving near me. If I just reach one inch, I'll steal it from them. Um, so I don't think that that's like flashes as much as that's just he's too toolsy at times for this level. But right. that doesn't make him a freak. He's just kind of proportioned in a way where he should be good at defense, and he's not. And then offensively, I think he doesn't really know how to play within the flow. It's just kind of a jump shot here, a pull-up jumper there. It's very much like ISO one-on-one. He doesn't really make anyone around him better. Um, and in which case, like I kind of understand why Roy Williams is playing him in the second unit because it does feel like when the second unit comes in and it's like Seventh Woods, him, Brandon Robinson, uh, Sterling Manley, and uh, and Leaky Black, like he gets a lot more freedom to figure things out offensively. And on the first unit, he would never get to do that, ever. No, but you, I mean, even on the second unit, it's not like it, it doesn't... It doesn't look good. No, it's know? not at all, but he's at least getting reps to like, kind of get his feet wet. Yeah, the only thing that right now to me looks like, and I'm not going to say college or NBA ready or anything like that, the thing that looks most comfortable to me is either his catch and shoot or when he gets a little pocket of space and is able to step into a, a, pull-up, a pull-up jumper. Uh, those are the two things, even though you know it's not like he's been connecting on his shots, those are the things where, to me, he looked, uh, he's looked okay. And that's where, 
aside from the fact that at the high school level he was a bull and could get to the rim, that's where you pair those those things with his physical tools and you have something that's still very interesting to me. Sure. Because he can do a little stuff with the ball to set up a jump shot that other guys with his size and athleticism may not have been able to do at his age. I, I, I'm setting I the totally ball really low. No, no, you're really you, going back to the you, basics with him. You're but, right. But it is there. You, you, I mean, if you stack him up against, against like a Justice or even a Kawhi, which I'm not trying to compare him to those players, but like he could, he had a better pull up game than those guys. Now, like right. Justice, you could give the ball to off of a board, and he could come up and like kind of get you into an interesting set. That wasn't a point guard set, right? Like he could run like a dribble handoff. He could run like a little pick and roll. Like I, Nasir has really no nuance or basketball functional wiggle to his game. That's why he like bowls people over. Doesn't really understand how to navigate any sort of defenders in transition. Um, and that's where he's the most athletic is when he can just kind of go up with two hands and throw it down in transition. But he doesn't have any sort of guile right now to to get around people. And a guy like Justice did at this age. Justice, we just had major question marks about his jump shot. Um, yeah, I mean, I I understand how it could come together for Nasir in a way where, like, second half of the season, the light starts to go on. Do I think that that version of Nasir is going to warrant a top three pick? No. I'm not even sure if it will warrant a top four pick. But, like, it does make him a lot more interesting than whatever we've seen thus far. Because the Nasir little we've seen thus far... If you told me this is what he'd be like in March, I would have a tough time calling him a lottery pick. Yeah, I mean, to me, for what it's worth this early in the season, and he's clearly still adjusting and hopefully does look a lot different, I don't see how he's a lottery pick right now. I mean, I I don't see it. To me, me, a lot, so much is going to have to change for for me to get to that point, because to me he he feels like just you know an athletic body and absolutely nothing else. You said a name earlier when we first brought up, brought his name up, and that was Ananobi, and that to me like that now feels like you know wishful thinking upside to me. Um, and That's it's hard depressing. To even envision that simply because Ananobi is you know he can do some stuff on offense and shoot. But he makes his bones on the defensive end, uh, and this kid's just so far from that right now. So to me, I think, and I think the other thing is, it's not just that he looks like he's having trouble getting the spots. He's having trouble with size and length. His shots not falling. You know, if if that's where the transition challenges were, then I would feel different. But he just looks. He just looks so lost and like he's never picked the ball up. And to me, that's just a huge concern. And it's so drastic right now that I've just, I, I'm, I'm not hoping for or expecting anything to vault him back into the top five. I want to see him get more comfortable and show me he can have an upside as a, as a quality role player because you know, no matter what level he's playing at, he's going to be big and athletic doesn't matter whether it's college or the NBA. And if he can figure out a way to make himself into a solid role player, then there will be a spot and there will be someone that can make him useful. But right now, he's so far away. I mean, he's 
he, he's a minus. When UNC goes and plays good teams, who knows when that's going to happen because they play the dog shit uh, preseason schedule every single year. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know if he's – he looks like he's unplayable to me. Yeah, I think – I haven't seen all three of their games, but – and I know he had – I know he scored a bunch against the line, but, uh, yeah, I'm just not seeing it right now. But you have to admit that there's, like, a world where they play Duke and – Nasir pretty much says, I'm going to take so much pride right now to just ugly up the game against Zion or RJ or Cam. And that alone is going to be the you know first page of his resume and potentially uh, a little bit of fuel to start kind of getting the Nasir little little train back on the on the tracks. I don't think he can do it for a full game. I think that he could definitely have a spurt because he does play with energy and he can match those guys athletically. So I could see like spurts, um, and maybe that does get get the train back on track. I just, to me, what I'm seeing is not a train that's off the track. It's it's a guy who was never on the track, and we just watched him play it against high school players, and he's just not there. Yeah. See, this this happened. You know, it's not like he's the first guy to go through this. It's just he's the first guy in the last few years, I think. And part of that is probably him being him being a late bloomer. I think that plays plays an impact for us. So okay, I mean let's let's uh, let's move into Romeo Langford, who just played Marquette. Indiana had a great win against them. Um, in state guy playing at Indiana with you know obviously a huge recruit for Archie Miller, um, and another guy who I think is a dark horse candidate. You know entering the year to at least provide some sort of fight and battle with the top three guys. I don't think anybody thought Langford was going to be one or two, but, like, you know, if we talked about earlier in the our podcast in here about Cam Reddish potentially dropping out of the top three, people probably flagged Langford as somebody that could get hot and compete with those guys and maybe steal a spot up there. Um, played well, but I think he's a really interesting player in terms of just the evaluation, so I'm curious – where you're at with him. Yeah, the same same thing. Same thing. Um, did you watch the Marquette game? I did, yeah. I was going to say, have you seen, is that the first time you've seen them or have you seen them play already? Uh, that's the first Indiana game I saw. Um, I've obviously seen yeah. Romeo in high school. Right. Yeah, no, that was the first the first Indiana game I've seen. And my, I, almost, I was going to text you, but, you know, I'm trying to save stuff for, for the podcast here, but... You say it's an interesting player to evaluate. To me, he's like one of the most complex players to evaluate that I can remember, um, both from a personality standpoint and how that translates on the court, um, as well as his game. It's very unique, especially for an 18-year-old. Um, I think from a personality standpoint, it's I, I, I struggle or not I struggled, but after one game, I was struggling to decide if he was aloof and kind of stoic, but maybe not even stoic, maybe more so just a little lacking of emotion, or if he was more on the cool, calm, and collected side. And I think that was something that I never was able to wrap my my hands around um, completely watching him in high school. And I feel even more confused in that regard um, after watching them against Marquette. But what do you think about about him from a personality standpoint? 
I think he's a really shy kid. Um, but I kind of am worried that we're going to overanalyze his personality as a course correction for Markel Fultz. And I'm not sure that that's fair because is he an emotional player? No. Does it feel like you notice him from an intangible standpoint, possession to possession? No. But he kind of plays defense. A shot goes up and he'll throw his butt in somebody and box out a little bit. He's not just reliant on natural gifts and athleticism. Um, could have easily just settled for jump shots in that game. Thought he got to the, the paint a lot. Um, and I do think there's something to be said for acting like you've been there before. And that's what it felt like to me. Now, I could go further and get into the whole stoic versus aloof and that's the great, you know, that that's a debate as old as time. Like, we're always going to see players of this mold and wonder where they fall on that side of the spectrum. But I did like that he expects to score and he doesn't react after he scores. And I didn't feel like it was in a this guy doesn't give a shit way because he made the team better. Like, this isn't an Indiana team that's going to be dog shit all year and he's going to get his points. And they're gonna, and they can't reach a certain level because Romeo's aloof. Um, maybe, maybe he does have a ceiling for how high they can go because he's never going to be that like alpha, um, completely charismatic and braggadocious personality on the court. But I watched an Indiana team that I said this seems a lot better than they were last year. This kid could easily go into Jack mode and not really be a cog in their offense. And it never felt like he was doing that. And yet it felt like he had a really good game. He picked his spots appropriately. And he made Indiana better. Um, so I'm I'm torn because I know I can just see into the future that like this will be a huge debate on Romeo Langford all year. And if you watch him in interviews, he does come off as very uncomfortable and shy. But when you watch him on the court, I did not get the feeling this was like some 17-year-old that the stage was too bright for him. I think he's just not an intense, braggadocious, flashy person on the court. Well, and, and I'd agree with that. But I think that there's a lot of space in between intense, braggadocious, and whatever the other adjective you said was, and Markel Fultz. So I don't even want to really go there. I still think, though, you know, aside from having those kind of two extremes... You know, you still want guys generally to display intensity and display emotion. And there's nothing wrong with being a silent killer. And I think that's what we need to suss out where he falls on that spectrum. Even if it's not, you know, in a career curtailing spot such as what we've seen with Fultz thus far. Um, I think there's probably a lot more space in between where this kid can fall. It was just that was just one of the interesting kind of my interesting takeaways um, that led me to say he or feel that he's such a strange, unique, and complex prospect. I think his game is also it's also very complex and, and unique. I mean, he has he has elements of a very savvy veteran scores kind of arsenal. 
Um, but yet his game in other ways is still, you know, very raw. His handle is not tight. Uh, his shot, while he has kind of like a nice buttery form that you feel like will ultimately come together, he's not, you know, a knockdown shooter right now. And his form probably still could use some tightening up. So he's still raw in certain aspects, but he's got this, this kind of veteran's knack to score that you'll never be able to teach someone. I mean, I think if, if you looked at all the buckets he got in that game last night, they were not those of what you would think a freshman would be doing. And he doesn't have like a tailor-made fundamental game, which is why on one play you can say, this kid's never going to be able to score at the next level because his handle's just not there, or he doesn't look to pass at all, and that's going to really limit how defenses play him. But then at the next play down, he does something so unique that you say, man, there's no there's no 18-year-olds doing that, and maybe that will translate because he's got the physical package to do it. Um, so I, don't know, I, was, I was left more perplexed than anything. I bounced around from saying he, he, he's not, he's not, you know, he's not a, a top-ten pick to saying this guy's a top-five pick five times throughout the game. So I was all over the place. What did you think of his game? No, I mean, I, I think guys of this mold are typically not as athletic. They're not as big. They have like some sort of glaring hole uh, or concern that you can put onto them, and I don't know that he has that. Now, like, is the handle incredibly tight? No, but I can see a path to where it becomes really good. Um, I don't think it's going to be all world, but it, I see a path where his handle becomes good to very good, and I don't feel like he premeditates the game. Does he think score, score, score? Absolutely. But it's all. It also feels like he's just kind of figuring it out on the fly, like where he wants to go. And a lot of it's somewhat similar. He really wants to go right a lot. He loves driving across the lane. He doesn't always get to the glass cleanly. Seldom drives left. And when he does, he wants to use his right hand if possible. I don't think the left hand is non-existent. I think he just heavily favors the right. Um, but I think he's hard to guard. And as his t- his handle becomes tighter. As he matures more, as the jump shot becomes more of a threat, I think it, the release point's a little bit high. It's kind of like above his head, um, and, and I'd like to see it kind of, I agree, tighten up a little bit, become a little bit more classic of a shot. But I, I've always thought range was never an issue for him. It was just, you know, he did a lot of the Russell Westbrook hand drop in high school, which I didn't see as much, and he did, he just had a lot of bad misses, like He'd make an NBA range three with ease in high school, and then he would take another one and completely whiff. And so, you want to see that, you know, the the you want to just see the lows disappear, and we'll see if that happens. But I, I really thought he scored in in a couple different ways, even though his approach was kind of similar, like driving right, driving across the lane, throwing up these like looping floaters and funky shots. Um, but he has a feel for it, and right, they weren't they weren't lucky. No, they, not at all. They it, weren't lucky. They were makeable for him. And and they were they were not. While the maybe the way he got to the shots were somewhat similar, each shot felt a little bit different in a way that like you're not going to see him coming and say, Romeo's going to plant his foot right now. He's going to spin and he's going to loop it in this with this hand at this release point. I don't think you can predict that with him right now. And when he becomes more ambidextrous and he becomes a little bit more cerebral. I think he's going to be a complicated player to defend. Now, if he gets to the league and 
his body doesn't prove enough and he's a streaky shooter and the handle doesn't get tighter, then he's he's lame. I mean, he's just an inefficient offensive, you know, bucket getter type, um, you know, microwave guy that nobody wants. I get that. I don't know if that's James Young. I don't know if that's Jordan Crawford, but like it's lame. And but I, I don't think it needs to be that way. And I do understand why the personality is going to play a heavy part in that. But I'm at least optimistic because I always thought this kid had a little bit of defensive mindset in him, a little bit of rebounding willingness, little things that like you don't see from guys of this mold. Um, and it wasn't just because they were playing, you know, it wasn't because he was going up against Quentin Grimes in high school. It's just, he just kind of had that to him a little bit. And I think he can. I think that could turn into something that makes him somewhat unique for a bucket getter. I, I still can't put my finger on who he's going to be. I keep wanting to say Will Barton, but I feel like that's just that's like a lazy comp for players. Um, and I think Will Barton's really unique. But I, I'm struggling to find the comp for him right now. And I do think he's a he's a tough eval, like higher upside than Quentin Grimes. But you kind of know where Quentin Grimes' floor is. And as we've, as at least as I've said, Romeo's floor is the team that drafts him. Is it going to want him after you know two years? Well, I think as of right now, I mean, I don't, I don't think they're in the same league as prospects. Uh, based on what I've seen thus far, I think Langford is you know notches above Grimes. Um, you know, I will definitely I agree with you that defensively, you know, I don't know if that's you know he doesn't have a defensive mindset. But there's enough there. That's not. I don't think that, from what I saw, that's going to be a huge, you know, demerit for him. It's not going to be everywhere. You know, he makes him. You know, makes himself valuable. But the question to me is is the offense. I think he did show last night some instances where he was able to make quick decisions with passes, where he got into the teeth of the defense and hit a guy in a corner across the court. Um, that was an impressive pass. To me, it was just like the scale between looking for my own offense and passing the ball was just like way too far in the looking to my own offense. I mean, I think it's good that he is a scorer, uh, but that's something that as you know, will, he'll need to tip that scale back a little bit. But that's something that can come over time, uh, especially as he kind of gets used to being surrounded by other really good players. Um, yeah, I don't know. The comp is weird. I, I go to, in my mind, the guys that came up were other guys that have kind of unorthodox games that are predicated around scoring. And for me, the scary part is that it's never easy to watch these guys in college and identify what their game's going to look like in the next level. So I thought of um, Marshawn Brooks. I thought of Justin Jackson. I thought of Chris Middleton. Those are guys, to me, who have very unorthodox scoring games, but are bucket getters of a similar size. Um, and I think you've seen that you know what they did in college is completely un- unindicative of what happened to them in the pros. I think I think this guy's just going to be a hard one, hard one to peg. Would you throw somebody like Tony Roten to the comp pool? Well, I think if you're if you're looking at Roten as someone who was a me-first player and someone who had a lot of offensive ability but for maybe kind of personality reasons wasn't able to make it work, then I suppose. To me, where my focus is more with this kid is he just has a very unorthodox game and I think that's 
where my question marks are. Even though I did say that, you know, the scoring to passing balance isn't where I want it to be, to me it's trying to figure out is his is his game of kind of floaters and, and in between scoring and being able to get by guys without a real credible tight handle, is that gonna be able to hold up against all types of competition this year? That's that's my question. And maybe I'm overstating the unorthodoxness of his game a little bit because I think he's probably a little bit more classic of a scorer than a guy like a Middleton or Justin Jackson, but I just think he's in that mold. And I think those guys are, it's really hard to tell if, if they translate yeah. the way they, they operate. And there's obviously going to be a part in the year where Indiana faces teams that like the second Langford darts past one guy, they're going to pack the paint and really make him deal with something complex once he gets into the paint. Um, that's coming. And the question's going to be, does he then find the open man? How quickly does he do it? Do turnovers pile up? Does he bowl people over? Uh, I, and I, I think it'll be interesting to see what, how his game evolves as teams figure him out you know, slightly. So re- really unique guy. I, I can just forecast that we're going to be having – I know you're saying Lankford's a couple notches above Grimes, but I can guarantee you it's going to be a debate, those two, and it's going to be going on all year. Um, but let's talk about Darius Garland, who might be the best point guard prospect in this draft. And I think that that's more of a testament to the kind of talent we have in this in the 2019 draft at the point guard position. Um, you know, I, I in terms of Nasir Little and Langford, I really had no idea which way you were going to go. I thought there was a chance I was going to say uh, Nasir Little sucks and you'd be kind of caught off guard. Uh, or that you would be like all in on Langford. Like I really never know. Um, I have a feeling you probably really like Darius Garland's skill set. Yeah, yeah, I mean you have to. Um, I think he's a guy who can kind of. There's really no weak spots in his offensive arsenal right now. Uh, the only thing I think he probably needs to improve is just his ball handling, um, which is huge for a point guard. And I think that's one of the big question marks for him. But if you're looking for a guy who has enough athleticism inside to really open up the floor to anything. And then he also has the shooting and scoring package to finish at all three levels. Um, and even though I think the handle does need to get tightened up, he does have a real good kind of ISO ability and an ability to create space and re- read how defenders are playing them and get guys on their heels. So I think the handle needs to catch up to that creativity. Um, but there's something there for sure. And the thing that to me I'm most impressed with for a freshman, I mean, he, he really is comfortable shooting off the dribble and doing it from range. And it seems like he's able to kind of step into those shots without a ton of time to gather and without creating a ton of space. Um, so that's, you know, that's impressive. I think I made me kind of think back, and, and this name came up, we spoke a little bit earlier, but Dennis Smith. Dennis Smith, he's really gotten a lot better as far as shooting off the dribble, and it was something that he could do from three at NC State, but he needed a lot of space to do it, and it felt like it was just kind of a result of him abusing less athletic players at the college level, whereas this kid, he can get it. It, it doesn't require him to destroy a low D1 player, get space, and then pull up. I mean, he can really do it within the flow of his of his dribble move. Um, and I think that's where, to me, 
because I don't love his handle and he's not a big time athlete. I think that's where his highest upside lies in being able to just be a gunner that can, can really shoot the crap out of the ball uh, from distance. I, I actually am pretty optimistic about his handle. I, I think it's it's got a lot of uh, positive indicators. I think he can dribble with either hand. I think he does get into his, his uh, pull-up arsenal pretty well. Um, I have a slight concern that his jump shot mechanics are better off the catch than they are off the pull-up, but I think his footwork is really good. Um, there's just something about his pull-up jumper that I'm worried it's not going to work against longer, toolsier athletes at the point guard position. Um, well, because you're saying because he's got, he releases the ball like at his chin, right? And, and 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 he's not like I, I'm worried about his size. Like I think he's a potentially a small six two. Uh, I'm assuming you watched him against Winthrop, right? Correct. Okay, Correct. so, so not see the USC because against USC, like he he got he had to play bigger athletes and in the paint that really bothered him he got lost a lot when he would dribble beyond the free throw line and he'd be forced to pick up his dribble in tight spots and just you could see the options shrink for him he couldn't even just make the classic like i'm too deep in the paint let me just loft it back out to a shooter to kind of reset or just hopefully hit like a third read in this set um because i i don't think he's that kind of of a passer, like I think he's a really comfortable passer in pick and roll. I think he's a really comfortable passer when he can kind of orbit around the arc and hit oop guys. And he's very willing. Like I think he's very willing as a passer. He could be really good at that end. But it does feel like once he gets you know past the free throw line, size and length really bothers him. Though at the end of the USC game, he had a great play where he kind of uh, they were up, I believe, two. And there was maybe like 20 seconds left. I, I could be totally off on the the stat, you know, the numbers here. But he he hesitated. Somebody got to his left hand and scooped in like a pretty crafty finish before the trees could really impact the shot. And I, I do think there's there's real craftiness potential there. But the guy I kept thinking about with him was Cameron Payne, and I think they have a similar approach. They love playing pick and roll. Really, you know, good dribble potential. You you like the pull up shot. You like the three point range. You like the highlights from his passing package. Um, has to, has to be a heavy floater arsenal. And this kid's got a really good floater arsenal. Like I love when he does the pick up dribble, kind of like up fake, and then he steps through on a pivot and and does like this two handed floater runner. Um, I think that's a great move for him. But like. I don't know. I, I just keep thinking about guys like Cameron Payne and Brandon Jennings when I watch him. And to me, that's a concerning family tree to be on when you're moving it to the next level. I think he, you don't think he's a, I think he's a significantly better athlete than those guys. Than Brandon Jennings was? Yeah. I mean, me, no, maybe not Brandon Jennings, not what Brandon Jennings was, but Brandon Jennings was a good player. I mean, like Cameron Payne's probably not an NBA player. Brandon Jennings, I mean, he was he was a solid player, and then injuries took him down. But I, mean, I, I I think he's this kid's not as athletic as Jennings, but he's he's definitely stronger, uh, and I think he's an okay athlete. He's not a bad athlete. He's got some twitch. Um, he jumps passing lanes well. He's not, he's by no means slow, but like if you're going to be slight of frame and on the short end of six two. 
I want you to be a guy that can really make people uncomfortable with your quickness. And I don't think he's got that. I think his best bet is going to be to make people uncomfortable with his handle someday and his footwork um, and the threat of his jump shot. And that is going to be there probably. And in which case, maybe he's got some like DJ Augustine. I'm just kind of grasping for straws here. Um, But I watched him play and I just thought, if this is the best point guard this draft has to offer, it's just going to be a draft where you have to hold, you know, hold firm and say, maybe he's the best, but that doesn't mean he has to be a lottery pick. And maybe he doesn't even have to be a top 20 pick. Because I don't think there's a guarantee that Darius Garland is a starting NBA point guard. And to me, I, like, where does that leave you? I, I mean, I think, I think he's got the opportunity to be, I think he's back up. And I, but I think he's got some appeal as a backup that can do, you know, as either, I don't know if it's a high level backup or he's a guy that could potentially slot into both guard positions in the starting lineup. Like I I think because of the fact that I think he's a decent athlete, I think he's got a good body and offensively he looks like someone that can create his own shot or shoot off the catch. I think that allows you to do a lot of different things with them. And I think when you look at the guys you're naming, and I'll throw in like a Trey Burke and someone who's smaller like Shabazz, I think he's just more athletic, not necessarily more dynamic than those guys, but I think he's more athletic. I think he's more well put together. And I think that that will actually really open things up for him quite a bit. But I don't look at him as uh, as a starter. I don't think his skill set is special, although I think he's very well-rounded for a freshman, and athletically, he's meh. But I do think, I do think there's, there's something interesting with him that could make him more than just throw him into Jalen Brunson, DJ Augustine, Tyus Jones backup category that bounces around the league. I think he's got the potential to be a little bit more interesting than those guys. I think he but does not necessarily a starter level. Like he's not Jamal Murray to me. No, but there's not, like there's obviously a big gap between that, and um, I just shudder to to place guys that were like uncomfortable calling starters that high at the point guard position um, because you can always go find like the Tim Frazier's of the world or the Ish Smiths who aren't that expensive to sign aren't that expensive to acquire and they're damn good backups. And while the DJ Augustines of the world kind of bounce between, you know, being one of the best backups in the league and being like a fringe starter, you know, what's beyond that to me is like essentially starter. And when you get to that like 27 to 30 starter range, I just don't think that means you're a starter, you're just a starter by like necessity. Uh, but you're not a starting talent point guard. Well, and point guard's a weird position for this uh, because it's it's fairly specific. It's you know you can't really play guys in multiple spots like you could in the wing. So that's why it's and, and I get what you're saying. If you're not drafting the guy you think is your starter for the future, then what are you drafting? Especially if we're talking about the lottery or the top twenty. And probably more often than not, when guys get drafted there, if you don't truly believe in them. You're probably left with a Cameron Payne more so than you're left with like a Terry Rozier. Uh, Terry Rozier, right? Exactly. Yeah, Terry Rozier is probably in the minority in, 
that regard. And to me, Garland is probably not a lottery pick. I think, you know, depending obviously on how the season plays out, he's probably someone that falls into after the lottery and he puts a team in a position. Do you want to draft probably a, a role player, maybe someone that's you have a, maybe more ready to contribute as a wing role player defending and shooting because it seems like that's where these picks go nowadays. Or do you want to draft someone with, with maybe some, some more potential than that? And I think that's where, where this kid fits. But to me, he's not – I'm not using a draft pick on him to put my franchise cornerstone point guard in place. That's just I, – I don't I, to me, I don't see it unless – he really starts to unlock some off-the-dribble shit um, in a big way that I haven't seen yet. Yeah, and, and but I would just argue that the players in the mold that we're talking about, they're seldom impact players initially, even off the bench, uh, because the guys that do do that, I feel like have some sort of freaky spark to bring that maybe you don't have on your team. And unless this guy's a killer shooter, which I think he's good to very good and he could get better with age, but is he going to be killer as a rookie? I doubt it. Like, I don't know why he's some impact sub even when I think unless he goes to a team that's just really young and trying to figure them themselves out and they're just cycling guys in to see what they have. I'm talking about like a team that's good. Can this kid come in and be the backup point guard on the team that picked 23rd in the draft and is trying to be a playoff contender. I'm, I, I guess, but I don't know that he's an impact backup. And so, well, and I think, I think it's a tough position for that to expect that we just generally don't see that's how it happens. It's just, it's probably, if you're not a high level prospect, it's probably the hardest position to transition to, to get qual to give your team quality minutes. It's easier to be, uh, I don't know, and this guy might even be playing some point guard right now, but it's like easier to come in and have a Dante DiVincenzo just shoot when you're open and play defense as the 18th pick in the draft as opposed to being Tyus Jones come in and run a team. Yeah. but I, and Just I, an easier transition. Yeah, and I would argue that the majority of the guys who you know, that we're talking about who are like really good backups, they probably more figured out or things come together and click on their second or third or fourth team, not right away in their first opportunity. And if they do, it's probably like, oh, they came out and had like a really good 10-game stretch. People figured them out and they fell off. You know, it's not like it's not sustained success over the course of a season or really when it matters. So I, that's just my concern with Garland. And, and I, I maybe he'll prove me wrong. And I, I know a lot of people like him. Uh, and I see why. But... To me, he might just be the the best point guard in this draft, but we got to remember that it just might not be a good point guard draft. Um, I, I also think something that's being undersold with him, and this is from a, a concern standpoint, I just don't think he's got the full. I, I don't think he's got his point guard chops yet. I, to me, I I feel like I'm looking at a combo guard. See, I, um, I don't see that at all. I, I actually think he's like a real point guard. He's just limited in the passes he can make because of his size. But he's at, at the college level. He's not small. I mean, he's he's got decent. He's got average to decent size for uh, a college point guard. I mean, I think six two is not. I don't think it's small at this level. 
No, it's not. I just, I just don't see. He's he's again, and and a lot of the, not that he shouldn't be because he should, but he's very much score first. Eyes are always at the rim. I mean that that's just. It seems like everything every everything he's doing is score first. Now maybe he has shown that he can have a nice little dump off here or there for you know once he gets into the lane. But that's not necessarily what I'm saying when I'm saying point guard chops. I'm talking about a table setter and someone who runs the offense. And maybe that's because uh, Saban Lee, whatever, he likes to handle the ball, maybe more so than your average two. Um, and things are early. But, you know, I think even the statistics back it up. He, he doesn't have, he only has a handful of assists and a shit ton of turnovers um, in two games, granted. But, um, yeah, I mean, to me, that's that's another thing that's a bit concerning. I feel like I'm looking at a score, and not a point guard. Well, then in that case, I, I think that like I personally think he's got passing chops. I, I do believe there will be a transition to incorporate them in the NBA because of the the struggle he'll have with length and the way that impacts the passing lanes in the league. But if you believe that, then I think that makes him even less interesting. Um, but let, let's talk his teammate uh, Simi Shitu, who kind of bleeds into a broader conversation that we wanted to have today. Um, I'm, I'm really curious, do you think he's a 4-3 or a 4-5? Or do you think he's just like a straight 4? I think he's a 4-5. I don't think there's three. I don't, I don't think there's really any 3 there. Because I thought he had some, like, obviously grab-and-go and, like, wannabe playmaker chops, but... I do concede that that doesn't have to mean he's a three. Um, I guess when I saw him in high school, I kind of wanted him to be Marcus Morris. Um, but I don't think he's going to have the perimeter game of a Marcus Morris. I think he's going to live more in weird high post spots, mismatch in the elbow areas, um, as opposed to being like an actual floor spacer. Yeah, I could I could see that name coming, especially in high school, but... It's, to me, from a skill set standpoint, he's just—he's so fluid, and he's a natural athlete, and he can do stuff with the ball. But his his skill set, especially on the perimeter, is—it's not refined. So he's going to be able to get guys with his athleticism and mobility, but he's never going to be able to—well, at least not right now—he's not going to be able to beat guys with skill. And that's—you know—you see at the NBA level. Marcus Morris, that's all he gets by on. Um, and I don't know, Simi just seems like he's very, very far away from that. To me, he's more of a, a guy who needs to prove himself as kind of someone who can stretch the floor a bit, or at least projects to in a few years, and someone who's going to sell out on every possession. That's that's what I see. I, I just don't see the... I just don't see even the framework for like a highly skilled player. I see a mobile player, but not a skilled player. If that makes sense, that distinction. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's just a weird eval because of the places he wants to operate from, and they're not really the places you want uh, a modern day four to operate from. Um, so that that to me makes him somebody hard to pin down if he's going to remain a player that prefers to to play within eighteen feet of the basket. To me, he needs, to, and maybe I'm selling him short, so I'm interested to hear what you think. But to me, like, he needs to be a, a, a six nine, six ten, like Thomas Robinson type. That's what I say. At the next level, at least. How big do you think he is? 
I think he's he's. I mean, to me, he looks like he's he's six nine, six ten. Okay, because I've had that debate with Maybe Sarouk. bigger. He might be bigger. See, I thought he was 6'8". Um, Maybe 6'8". Yeah, but I've talked to people who who say, no, he's he's a big 6'9", at least. Um, I I just thought he, he seemed smaller to me, and I thought he played a little small. He's obviously a very willing rebounder, and he boxes out consistently, and he's got a nose for the ball, and it's clearly a, you know an important part of the game for him. Um but I'm concerned that he's not going to be able to play his style in the NBA. He's going to struggle to finish in the rim around the rim as easily. He's not going to uh, mismatch guys as cleanly. And there's going to be a major kind of roadblock he's going to hit if this is just what we're going to expect him to be moving at the forward to the next level. He's going to have to, I think, reinvent himself a little bit because I don't know that I see the appeal in the the player he is right now, like a six eight and three quarter four man that wants to mismatch at the high post, take guys up the dribble, mostly to get to the rim, uh, grab and go, one hand pass here and there, but you're never really running your offense through him and rebounds well, which in my opinion is probably the least important stat from a modern day four. He was, I'm sorry, but he me- he has measured without shoes at basketball without borders at six ten and a half. So for I what it's worth, I don't believe that. You, you don't, yeah, of course you don't have to buy it. Yeah, I don't buy that's that. Just, I, I'm just googling right now to see if there's any uh, measurements for him. But it it sounds to me like we're on the same page. I mean, to me, when I was watching him, I was saying, if I if I'm coaching him and I think how is he going to, you know figure out his way in the NBA, it's going to be tightening, tightening up his footwork and turning into someone who really does the little things at the big man position. Um, I just, yeah, I, I, I almost think it's a disservice for him to be at Vandy simply because I don't know if, and I don't really, you know, I don't know much about him from a, from a background or a personality standpoint, but I would want him to be focusing on the little things, and I'm assuming when he's the best or second best and most or second most valuable player on the team, that's not going to be it. It's going to be scoring, and that's going to be the focus uh, from the coaching staff, the focus on practice, and his focus as well. And I just don't see any of that translating. No, I mean, it's... I think think his best version of himself in the NBA is a mobile uh, big a mobile backup big that can finish around the rim and can kind of make make jump shots, or I should say, you know, set shots um, from the perimeter, stretch your defense. But is that even like? I just think the style of his game to me, it's like, you know, and we wanted to talk today about what I, you know, what what I believe is the death of the power forward position, where Simi Shitu is much more interesting ten years ago from a classic power forward sense where you could say we'll design sets where he can mismatch people because he is skilled and he does have some level of junk to his game that can grow in the NBA with age. Uh, but today, you know, it's just, you can't operate from those spots and be a four. And I, like, and that's why I don't believe that the power forward role exists anymore. I don't think we can even call it a power forward. I think it's, you're, and we call it a four, which is you know an easier way to, to avoid saying power forward. Um, so often now it's just guys that are used to be called threes that are now playing the four. 
um, or you're just kind of taking it as a, ch- a chance to get creative and throw out like weird funky lineups. Um, but I think uh, unless you're a shooting threat, you can't really play that position. In which case, you're not a power forward anymore because those guys really used to operate from the elbows and the high posts and be roll men. And that's just not that's just not where the position is anymore. And so, to me, Simi's a little outdated. I don't know if he's like Julius Randle was coming in. Maybe there's a little bit of similarity to that. I don't think he's nearly as much of a powerhouse and athlete combo as Randle was. Um, nor do I think he has Randle's motor in college. But... He to me. I can't believe you even just said that name. That was like, like Julius Randall people. And there's like he's someone who there are such a thing as Julius Randall people. Like you just besmirched them. In, in what sense? Julius Randall was like a beast. Like I don't know. He was like he, you know. You sometimes you just like have guys that you really like fall in love with, especially like coming into college. Like he was one of those guys for me. I don't even think he's like worth conversing about. Even, I mean, from the power forward standpoint, I get it, but. Not in the semi-shifted conversation. Don't you think that they somewhat operate from the same spots? E- even if, like, stylistically, semi-shifted does, doesn't get you juiced, as juiced up as Randall did? Yeah, they do operate from the same spots, but, like, Julius Randall did it at a, I'm going to carry a mediocre supporting cast to the final four. Sure, but I, either way, when, it gets, when you get to the NBA, it, that doesn't really matter because he's, he's still somewhat outdated. Right, he is, I mean, he is out there, and I think Julius Randle's a guy who, that's another guy, 10 years ago, he might be an all-star, 15 years ago, he might be an all-star power forward, and now he's coming off the bench, but he's, he's such uh, an anomaly because his combination, his physical package and his, his ability um, kind of with the ball in his hands is so unique that he's like an outlier. He's, I think he's having an unbelievable season right now, but... He's, there's nobody in the league like him, so he's he he fits perfectly into what you're saying. But he's almost a bad example because he's so good. Well, but I think he's he's also reinvented himself, and you know you can talk about how good of a prospect he was. It still took him reinventing himself a little bit, changing his body, uh, stretching out his game to become someone that people said, "Yeah, I can find a role for him." Instead of saying like, "Maybe we have to trade this guy." I mean, yes, yes, and no. I think in last he, he's been really good this year. Last year he was ridiculous, and contract year. I think, yeah, but he, so in this year is a contract year again because I think he got a one year deal. But he's, I think overall he's been pretty good for his career. I think he had one season. Like I think overall he's had a pretty good career, and. Yeah, but n- not by not by what the expectations was, and and I think that's a bigger, like you wanted to talk about No Vonleh and and Marcus Chris, and it's easy like in Vonleh's case especially, it's so easy to say he's a massive disappointment, but all of this is impossible to say without knowing where the guy was drafted because that carries so much weight and impact on how we view these players. You know, from a disappointment scale, Vonley's Vonley's still only twenty three years old, and he's been decent for New York this year. If he was the thirtieth pick in the draft, we wouldn't be talking about him. But it's where these guys are drafted and what the expectations were coming out of college that that is almost as big of a of a factor here as anything else. Well, I I mean I I think that I mean I I I disagree with you about 
about Randall. I don't think he's been a disappointment. He was like the seventh pick in the draft. I, I think he's I think he's pretty good, um, and I think most teams would want him and could find a, a spot for him. Um, I mean, as far as Vonley and Chris go, I think that one of the problems I think with how we look at because I do still think the power forward is a position. Uh, I think it's like a legitimate position. It's definitely much more fluid with the small forward position than it was a decade, two decades ago. But I still think teams, and if you look at, I think definitely if you look at starting lineups, but even to a lesser extent, if you just look at the, the minute, uh, the, the, how minutes are, are laid out across the league, I think you will still see that most lineups, most NBA lineups will include someone that is 6'9 or up and is, granted, they are now playing from the perimeter a lot, but they're still 6'9 and up. They can protect the rim. They can rebound. They can switch. That's something new. They can switch on the guards. But there's still spot for a guy who can play that hybrid role, and it's not a small forward. Some of them are. LeBron James is now a four. Kevin Durant is a four. Giannis is a four. But those guys are all massive. And Trevor Ariza, he's a three. He's not a four. You'll never see a starting lineup with him at the four. The Mars brothers, fours. Dario Sarge, four. So, I, I mean, I think that the position has changed a lot, but I think that the league will still show you. I think the minute disparity in starting lineups will still show you that there is a need for a guy who can fill that role on both ends. The problem is, I think, that position, the way the league is going now, is not a scoring position anymore. So that's where guys like Chris, maybe more so than Vonley, come in. It's just not a scoring position anymore. The only guy that scores doing power forward shit right now is Blake. And you probably, Blake is amazing and he's unstoppable. But having him as your primary scorer is probably not a winning strategy. So I think the position still exists. I think it's just it's just changed a lot, and the expectations of it have changed, if that makes sense. Yeah, but I think with that, we've changed what the position really is. And I, I know it's, it's, it's like evolution somewhat, but no other position has really evolved in the same way. Because I think... And maybe this comes back to the, what you're saying about these guys not being scorers anymore. But if I look at just I, – I pulled up depth charts from 2002, 2003. And I'm looking at guys who man the four. And so many of them just wouldn't play the four today. Like even, even Garnett. Like wouldn't Garnett just be a five like no, unquestionably? Yeah, I would say not 99%. What, what about like Kenyon Martin? Um, He'd have to be Kenyon a five. Kenyon Martin's a weird one. Kenyon, Kenyon Martin's just a weird one. I, I don't like Kenyon Martin would have developed differently because a guy almost you almost couldn't expect a guy couldn't even come up like that. But let's just say you drop Kenyon Martin um, in the league right now. Yeah, he's 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 a small ball five. five. Yeah, he's a small ball five. I don't know. He fits in a he's a, he's in a weird spot. But like yeah. PJ Brown, like I mean, might not even have a role today. Yeah, no, that's a five. That's he's a five. Like Drew Gooden, Kenny Thomas, like it's they're either fives or they're not in the NBA. Correct. So to, to I, me, I guess what I like. No, go ahead. I, go I mean, ahead. D- d- isn't that further proof that like 
like these guys were all like classic power forwards. Like I'm not even talking about the Zach Randolphs and the Elton Brands who were just like pure scorers from you know the blocks and the mid range. I'm talking about like th- those guys are like I guess role players, right? I mean, it's it's not the Jermaine O'Neals. It's 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 even a guy like like Reggie Evans. Like where does Reggie Evans fit today? He doesn't. He's not in the league. He's not in the league. And those guys are are distinct. Are are extinct. Sorry. But like, aren't we like like? Isn't the pool of players that played the four back then that could still have survived? Today at that position, it's so small. It's like Danielle Marshall, maybe Weber, Dirk. It's it's guys that could shoot back then who really were the minority. Like even like a Walter McCarty, like those guys could still play the four today, but it's really just because they could shoot. For sure, and, and that's why I think the positions change, but it's not dead. It's still it's still a unique position that's different from the small forward. It's not like I think people people talk as if as if everybody goes five and four guards or four wings, and and that's that's not really the case. It's just different. I don't think it. I I think it's more just power forward is really just like you have a primary ball handler, which is you know the classic point guard that still has not changed. Um, you then have a secondary ball handler, which can either be like a wing. Or it could be a combo forward if you have like a LeBron type, right? Or sometimes LeBron's obviously your primary ball handler. Um, and then, but I think that's kind of it. It's, you know, it's the primary, the secondary who can live in a couple different areas. Then you have like the wings, the combo forwards, and the bigs. And I think there's just a certain calculus today that you're you're seeing. Like you can't really trot out two combo forwards and a big. It's just outdated. It's like the same reason why it's always going to look clunky if Orlando's trying to play Jonathan Isaac, Aaron Gordon, and Vooch. Um, you just can't do that. But th- does it, doesn't that mean that you're calling them combo forwards? Doesn't that mean that Aaron Gordon's a power forward? And doesn't that mean that Marquise Morris is a power forward? And Dario Saric is a power forward? Isn't, doesn't, isn't that what that means? Well, I guess when I think power forward, I really think of like an interior-based player. Right. Those guys don't exist. They can't exist. But that's that's the power forward that we grew up with. Correct. So, I agree with that. So doesn't that mean those the power forward's dead? Don't exist or they, those guys don't exist where they exist in very odd uh, backup bench roles. Sure. I mean, that's why Deontay Davis, well, I shouldn't say that's why, because he, he might have some other reasons, but Deontay Davis isn't an NBA player. Ivan Rabb might not be an NBA player. Ed Davis is a, probably a backup five now. He 100% is, as is, you know, right. like, I, I mean, you know, however many years ago, Larry Nance, like Ibaka, Montrez, like these guys all would have been fours and you never would have thought twice about it. And no one in a million years ever would have put them out to play the five, even though there were only so many guys in the shack mold that would have abused them. Like, if you really think about it, if, like, Irvin Johnson is posting up Montrez, you're probably happy. Um, But today, these guys all play the five, or they're extinct. And I think it's, the to me, the... The four position, the four position is really just like you can call it a four, but you can't call it a power forward, in my opinion, because 
more than ever, you either have to have some sort of versatility or you have to be like really special or you just you can't you can't just be a power four. You have to be like a four five, which makes you a big, or you have to be like some weird four four three, which makes you a combo forward, even if you're you know, you really can't play the three. Like Aaron Gordon can't play the three. So I guess it's tough to call him a combo forward. Um but maybe that just means Aaron Gordon should be playing four five. I don't know. Well, I mean, I, I guess if if we're breaking it down in the sense of the literal meaning of the word power forward, then I would agree with you. It's it's extinct. Blake Griffin's the only one holding it together, and he plays point guard half the game. So that just shows you how ridiculous it is. I right. agree with you in that the semantics of it for sure, and I think, and that's why I look at a guy like Shitu as not having starter upside, probably for that exact reason. To me, he's a backup five who. If his shot tightens up, that makes him probably much more interesting because it allows him to, in certain units and lineup configurations, play with another big. I think that once you get to the second unit, you see that there is more flexibility with who can play because second units are just hodgepodges and they're guys that just a lot of times aren't that great. So there can be more flexibility in bench units, but as a starter, I think, yeah, as, as a start, then that's why I think he's not a starter. Yeah, well, I, I think kind of... interesting as a second unit player. What what, what Simi Shitu has in common with a lot of the guys we just talked about who have failed, um, maybe excluding Rab here, but like Deontay, Davis, Marquis Chris, Noah Vonley, Simi Shitu is... They're all going to be one and done guys, and I don't think that that's the end all be all. But like, they didn't get that chance that Blake had to like come back to school and grow his game, because Blake as a freshman is very different than Blake as a sophomore, and no one. I mean, it's just hard to kind of like add things to your game that weren't there in the NBA early on sometimes you get the luxury of doing that like later in your career like the way Brooke Lopez added the three-point shot like out of thin air but it's hard for these young guys to come in and I think add things that were just never ever there and are kind of make or break factors for them well and I think that's 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 one of that's the problem I think is that guys like Von Lane Chris and Shitu as well they don't have the they don't have a lot of like the little things to their game, which little things such as you know understanding how to box out, understanding how to hedge correctly, understand how to um, sit and help defense, but still have you know an eye and a hand on your man. Like these guys cannot do that. Their footwork when they roll. I mean, they're all things that as a big you need to be able to do, or else an NBA offense falls apart. Whereas backcourt players are generally that we're talking about is like top picks, like a Bonley or a, a Chris. Backcourt players just by nature are just generally more, uh, they're more refined. And then seven footers you can take your time with because the, you know, the, the saving grace with them is their height and length will allow them to be playable through their raw years. Whereas, Chris and Vonley, they don't have anything to fall back on, and they don't have a skill set. So the NBA is not the right place for those guys to build that. It's just not going to work for them there. 
Yeah, I mean, I, and then I, maybe I, they they have to reinvent themselves in in different ways. But that's why I, when I texted you earlier, this, or we were talking earlier this week, and I said the the low IQ raw big is not or raw big that's not a, a seven footer is done. Can't draft them high. And this kid doesn't have that either. This kid doesn't. This kid's you know something we haven't talked about with Shitu is he's lost in a lot of things defensively, and his footwork when he doesn't have the ball doing kind of the, the minutia of rolling to the rim and hedging, he, he's awful. So to me, that's why he's going to be unplayable if he leaves next year. Yeah, and I would argue that if he leaves now, the areas of his game that you're expecting to just come along later in his life and in his basketball NBA career, are, you're, you're kind of... You're kind of hoping something will come that's that may never show up and just might not be there, um, because I think with a lot of these guys, if you, if that doesn't happen, you get into a point where it's like become a serviceable slash unique slash non liability five or get out. And right, you, you know, like I went back and watched Von Late Indiana, and my takeaway was like, this is a this is an old school four. This is a guy that in the early 2000s maybe could have been in the, you know, Dale Davis or Kenny Thomas, like just that Kurt Thomas, like that whole realm of guys that just like, they're just, there's, they're not coming up anymore. Players aren't developed like that. And that's what Vonley was and was meant for. And today he just doesn't make as much sense. But again, I really, really, really do think so much of this just comes back to like, where were you drafted? And how much does that impact the expectation? Because in another world, Vonley spends the first four years of his NBA career in the G League, or, you know, his professional career, and that changes him. That evolves his game. But, you, you know, when you're drafted high, you don't have that luxury. And so I really think we don't talk enough about where a guy is drafted and how much that's impacting the way we view him and his success. Like I'm pretty adamant that like Randall is disappointment, but that's based off of where he's drafted. It's not, it's not that no one in the league wants him and he's, he can't find a job, even though I didn't think he had a very hot job market this past summer. It's, it's all relative to where they're drafted. Well, yeah, I mean, for, for sure, for sure. And, and also with, with, with Shitsu, he has less. You know, I think he has less upside. Regardless, even if even if we're correcting the power forward market and where guys are getting drafted, you know, he's not in the league of a Chris or a Bonley from a I should say supposed upside. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think that's fair, and I think listen, we're having a, probably a conversation that could be boiled down to a slightly more basic element, and that's just if you're not seven foot, learn how to be a guard is the answer because, you know, we can take this Julius Randle conversation offline, but there's not many of there's not many guys getting it done like him anymore. So that's why if you're not seven foot you should be a guard. So so what does all this mean for Marvin how kids are getting trained. So what does all this mean for Marvin Bagley? Yeah, and that's that's another I mean he's he's kind of you know, he's his prime example right now. I think he's the the next guy in this conversation. Um I think, you know, it, it, it's probably, you know, not a... And, and that's why I think I said on the first podcast that we did this season that if I could go back, he might be a guy that I would drop a little further. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think from a trend, a trending standpoint, 
it doesn't it doesn't you know bode well for him. But yeah. that was something people were aware, were aware of six months ago before the draft. Yeah, for, for for sure. But again, it just you know I can't say this enough. Like you look at a Jeremy Grant. Like Jeremy Grant is viewed as like somewhat favorably in terms of like what his NBA career has turned into. Um, but I think that just comes back to like where he was drafted. Well, for sure. I mean, he was he was like the 40th pick. So anytime you're looking at a second rounder that's a starter and making nine million or so a year, I mean, of course. Right, but for somebody like DJ Wilson, like DJ Wilson's not going to have that luxury because where he's where right. he was drafted, where Thon Maker was drafted, it looms over the way you talk about them, and it just they're already like working from backwards because of like the the things that they have to accomplish from a developmental standpoint and the expectations that are hanging over their head. Well, naturally, but but the we're talking about external conversation, which is it's 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 not really meaningful. I mean, at this point in you know, if you look at Son Maker, at this point, if he can turn himself into a a legitimate starter, that's just a win. I mean, you know, at this point, I think he's battling for his future in the league to a certain extent. So. If, if he if he can get himself to be a starter, who the heck cares what pick he was in 2016 or 17? Yeah, um, of course it'll change the conversation we're having. But right. But th- th- what's funny is like, you know, we spend so much time with these guys. Like, you know, you you were not on the staff last year when we're debating Bagley versus other guys at the big man spot. Um, but you were you were with us when we debated Deontay Davis with Henry Ellenson to the death. Um, even guys like T.J. Leaf and John Collins, like these were all debates, and they were all debates at like the four-man position. As we were trying to understand how that position would evolve and impact these players, who you know, in Deontay and Ellenson's case, are both one and done, right? And like, I, I think it's 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 interesting to look back at the debates, and in the Ellenson Deontay case, I guess nobody won, right? Um, and that was a conversation where I remember talking about it and like no one loved either player. And so we kind of just said, if anyone likes one, let's just go with the guy that at least has like a fan because no one likes either. When maybe the, the rationale should have been no one really likes either. Let's move both of them down. Yeah. And maybe that's maybe that's what needs to be applied to the uh, Big without a clear cut position. I don't think Leaf falls into that category because I think if from at least from like theoretically, if Leaf turns into the player you thought he was going to be at UCLA, I think that's still someone that's a start. Can I? I still think from a stylistic standpoint he could be a starting backup. I don't think that the league has changed to the point where he can't. I I, I think I think you need to sell all of your TJ Leaf stock. Well, no, no, no. But listen, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with that. But I'm disagreeing with it from the sense that, you know, he fits into some power forward that used to position that used to exist. No, he but doesn't. Now changed and he can't. I no, mean, he, he's for, just not good. For him not to work, it's because he exactly it's because he's not good. Right. Um, but yeah, maybe maybe the answer is, and I think, but I I think we probably do this, um, maybe not consciously, but I think. When we're evaluating guys, we've already gotten to the point where if we don't feel good about a big, and it's hard to put this in a blanket sense, if we don't feel good about a big that doesn't have a clear role as a five, then they, we drop them more than we might 
drop a wing because we know that there's more usefulness for maybe a bad wing than there is for a bad pig. But I think that's a dangerous place to, to be because there were conversations with John Collins that maybe he was outdated. And if we would have dropped John Collins further, it would have been really bad. And, and, and it's early. Yeah. Like, 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 we don't know what John Collins will be, but, like, clearly that's a guy who has continued to evolve as he's been in the league. No, for 100%. He bucks the trend, at least of what we were talking about two years ago. But look at, let's think about this. I'm trying to come up with a guy who a big try, – try on the spot right now to come up with a big who is like a late second-round pick. Not a Jeremy Grant, but a, a, a true big who was not a classic five, at least not coming out, that has exceeded expectations. Because I bet you there's a lot more Wayne Seldens and Norman Powells than there are big guys that have had success that we had ranked in similar spots so you, in the last but, five years. But you're saying second round, so like Pascal Siakam doesn't work. No, no. I, well, well, no, Siakam, Siakam, could be, Siakam could be in that category. But I think he's a guy who's who found – I think he's a guy who we probably thought was a tweener in a bad way, and it's turned out he's a tweener in a good way. No, we, I'm thinking more, we, well, I, I think we thought he was like a, like a positive – what the hell? I guess I'm looking at more of a guy who's who's a more of a classic big, and that's why I'm saying a guy who's a classic big, like a, Deont- a Deontay or even an Ellison. Those guys should be. If you don't like them, you should drop them more than you drop the Norman Powell and the Wayne Selden. Who well, I didn't like either of those guys coming out of college, but they're both going to have careers. And I think from a from a from uh, where I had them slated, they've there are more guys of that ilk that are exceeding expectations than there are guys of the Deontay Davis, Ivan Rab ilk that are exceeding expectations. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, I think on that note, I'm going to end this pod because we're at the 90-minute mark and there's a chance I'm going to lose power any minute now, which is why I said what the hell. Um, so I think this is a good place to stop. Alright, I like it. Stop on Wayne Selden and Norman Powell. Yeah. The the guy I was gonna list was Larry Nance, but uh I think we can we can think about that and chew on that. He sucks, he sucks, he sucks, he sucks. Okay. All right, so um Fox, uh we're gonna still have you jump on the Twitter account at some point. Um we're gonna have some big things popping over these next couple weeks. Definitely gonna bring in some guests. Um and we'll see what we wanna do for Thanksgiving week. But as always War Room Hustle, you know where to find us, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, wherever podcasts exist, we're there. We would appreciate tossing in some reviews, maybe give us five stars, we'll take it. Uh, If you want to pose any questions, we're still going to do a mailbag section, so we're happy to to take those in. You can email those to us or shoot it to us on Twitter. Um, But yeah, we're the War Room Hustle, we're we're draft evaluators. I'd liken us to, I, I don't think we're... Members of the analytics full-on, I guess, club, we definitely respect that. But I'd like to think of us more as, like, draft philosophers. Huh. I like that, draft philosophers. Can I put that on my LinkedIn? Yeah, yeah. I think you can also just get, like, a business card which says, like, draft philosopher. That'll do well. That'll do well with strangers, I think. They'll get it. They'll be, they'll be super confused in a good way. 
That's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> All right, Fox. Uh, much appreciated you coming on. Uh, have a great Thanksgiving. I'm sure we'll talk at some point next week, and we'll, we'll start tackling some other players, maybe a little bit of Bull Bull as he makes his New York debut playing in the 2K Classic tonight. Awesome. Looking forward to the Bull Bull convo later, Alon. All right, talk to you later.